We're in John chapter 9, and uh, we're going to begin tonight in verse 6, only two verses tonight, verses 6 and 7, but there's lots in it. So uh, here's how John chapter 9, verse 6 begins. It says, when he, that's talking about the Lord, right? Yeah. When he had said this, now you got to stop when the Bible says something like that. And you have to ask yourself, what question? You read something like that. When he had said this, what question pops into your mind? Said what? So that obligates you to back up a little bit and uh, look to the verses we discussed last week. And I'll just save you some time. This is one of the things the Lord said in the previous passage. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me. As it is day, night is coming when no man can work. Do you remember that? The Lord said that. I and mean, here's the occasion. He's uh, in the precincts of the temple. He's walking about. It's a dangerous atmosphere. The Jewish religious leadership have had it with him. They're already formulating a plan to murder him. Yet, he's still walking about in public. He and his followers, disciples we call them, came upon a man, the text says, born blind, congenital blindness. He was there somewhere at one of the gates of the temple begging. That's all a blind person could do to sustain himself. He was begging, and the Lord paused, and the disciples then were intrigued about his blindness. They found it interesting and it raised a question in their mind. Who sinned, said they? It had to be either his parents or the man himself. They ask, therefore, of the Lord, who's responsible for his blindness through their sin? Is it his parents' sin or his sin that brought this affliction about? Remember the Lord said to them, no, 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 you're missing it. Neither sinned. This has transpired because it presents God with an opportunity to display his glory through this particular man. So what's happening is that they were caught up with a, a theological issue, and they missed the opportunity to meet the needs of a needy blind man. They were more interested in talking about the blind man than about talking to the blind man. And so the Lord was saying, we've got time to talk about all these philosophical things in eternity. Right now, we have work to do. And we better attend to this work while it's still day. That is to say, while we have opportunity, because all of us have a shelf life. Night is coming for all of us. We will pass and therefore no longer have the opportunity to do here what we should be doing while here. So that's the context of it all. Now, when the Lord had said this, <clears throat> he spat on the ground. Does your Bible say something like that? I mean, holy Toledo. If you ever doubted the humanity of Christ, listen, he is God pre-existent. He had no beginning nor end. Jesus, that is. He's God in the form of man, the incarnation of Christ. God stooped. Emmanuel became one of us. God with us. And if you doubt that God became man, the God-man spat. God spits. There you go. You've learned something tonight. I mean, this is just such a graphic and blatant illustration 
of the condescension of almighty pre-existent God, Alpha and Omega, he who has no beginning nor end, he experienced humanity in its fullness except for one thing. What is it? No sin. No sin. Unlike us, no sin. But in other respects, just like us, he spat. Jesus, God-man, spat, the text says, on the ground. And, and what's more, he made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. That is, the eyes of the blind man. So I'm finding out so far, God spits and God stoops. And God gets his hands dirty. He gets his hands in the ground. Isn't this ironic? He gets his hands dirtied by the very ground he created. He spoke it into existence. And now he's applying a kind of a mixture of his saliva and this dirt. And it becomes like a clay-like mud mixture. And he applies it to the blind man's eyes, which is unusual to say the least. In fact, it makes no sense because mud applied to a blind man's eyes not only would not open his eyes, it would dry and fix them closed even more. So I'm not getting this, are you? But then I thought about this. You know, folks, it just may be that before the one who can open blind eyes does, does so, we have to have... Uh, we have to be persuaded of our irreversible spiritual blindness. We have to just get to the point where nothing we do can enable us to see what's going on. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where am I going? You have to just get to a point where you are enveloped by the atmosphere of darkness and your own blindness and nothing helps. No self-help books. No, nothing helps. You just can't make sense of it all. It's a bewildering life experience. You sort of have to get to that point before you're ready to have Jesus, the miracle worker, open your blind eyes. So the Lord, I think, gives this man an opportunity to have an, en an enhanced experience of blindness. So that's kind of what happens over here. Not only that, the mud applied. Don't you think it would irritate the man's skin? I mean, the Lord is rubbing it on and so And that made me think also... <coughs> There's not a Christian in this place who hasn't experienced as a prerequisite for salvation a measure of irritation. You just have to get irritated with the unbreakable, unwanted patterns of sin in your own life. You just have to get to a point where you're sick of it all. You have to get to the point Paul did. Remember when he said, Doggone it. Well, he didn't say that. I added that. But he said something like that. He said, you know, the very thing I don't want to do, I do. And on the other hand, the stuff I ought to be doing, I don't do those things. And he goes, wretched man that I am. He was so irritated by an awareness of his own irreversible sin nature. And then he said, but thanks be to God in Christ Jesus who set me free. But you see, you see the precursor to his salvation was his uh, irritation with his blindness. So I think that's sort of happening over here. And though the saliva thing seems odd to us today, can you imagine if you went for your 
annual physical exam and your medical doctor pulled a stunt like this. So what is up with this? Folks, in that day, it didn't seem so odd. The people of the day, they were quite superstitious, and they actually believed that the saliva, specifically of important people, men and women of renown, had magical healing qualities. This was, in effect, their medicine. And so it made sense to them what was going on, though not exactly to us. Now, the Lord had healed blind people before, had he not? This is not the first account of a uh, healing miracle such as this in the New Testament. The Lord did it many times, but never quite specifically like this. I mean, one time the Lord, again, using saliva, applied it directly to a blind man's eyes. But there was no mud involved in that. On another occasion, the Lord healed an afflicted man Without mud and spit, he just spoke healing into existence. And yet, in this case, this is kind of entirely different. Why? I think it's so that we realize the Lord is not bound in his capacity to do good. We're limited by the resources and people and circumstances and supply around us in order to bring about good outcomes. But the Lord is not bound. He could use a little bit of this. He could use a little bit of that. The mud is good. The spit is good. I don't need either. He could. This is really good. The Lord is absolutely unrestrained in his capacity to do good. You know, you get to the point, don't you? Sometimes in your life, when you're at the end of your rope, you don't see a way out. It's very dismal. You've lost hope. Because you've taken a survey of the reality you are involved in, and you don't see anything good coming of it. But I'm telling you, though you and I are boxed in to the harsh reality of our life situation, the Lord is out of the box. And so he's showing us an array of opportunities and means by which he did good for people. I think the other reason why this miracle is done differently than Others is so that the Lord would break our human tendency to copy his methodology. I mean, this will make it to so-called Christian TV. I mean, just get you some spit and some mud and let's have a healing service, you see. But no, no, the design of the Lord's miracles was to attract us not to a methodology that we duplicate, but to a Savior to whom we devote ourselves. And so he mixed it up. There's no formulaic healing miracles in the Bible. They're all different to keep us on our toes, you see. But why this saliva and dirt mixture? Maybe there's a connection. I'm just offering this. Maybe, maybe you don't buy it. Maybe there's a connection with Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Listen to what it says. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And now you have this God who formed man, as it says, out of the dust of the ground, using the dust of the ground to repair that man's body parts. He could do it. And so I'm wondering if that's what's behind this odd combination of saliva and mud. 
I do know this, I think. All that the Lord did was designed to enhance the man's hope. Here's a hopeless man. What did he have to expect from life other than being treated like a piece of property and deposited in a well-trafficked area so that some folks maybe experiencing a twinge of guilt would reach into their pockets and put some coins into his cup? That's all he had to expect. But I think the Lord is doing what he did incrementally to build up the man's capacity to expect, hopefully, maybe, that this Jesus, whom he couldn't even see, might be able to do something for him. And so, so for instance, even though the blind man could not see this Jesus who saw him, he could hear him. Blind people, especially those blinded from birth, oftentimes have a very acute and well-developed sense of hearing. And this man undoubtedly could have heard this unusual rabbi Jesus. He could have heard him as he stooped and as he spat and as he needed this unusual, the ingredients of this healing bomb, his saliva and the mud together. This blind man is taking it all in slowly, sequentially, each step. He's imagining maybe this is different. Maybe he's not going to just put a couple shekels into my cup. Maybe there's more in this relationship for me than I ever imagined. And though he could not see the Lord, he surely could feel the Lord's touch. And when the Lord applied this unusual mixture to his eyes, he felt it. The blind man felt it. And so you see all of his faculties are being engaged, save one sight, that he couldn't utilize. But all the other senses were fully activated. And all of it, in my opinion, are moving the man from discouragement and despair to hopeful expectation that maybe something is going to happen. And then on top of it all, the blind man heard this Jesus say in verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Go? (laughs) How is he going to go? The blind man now is approximately one-third of a mile away from the pool of Siloam. He's in the temple precincts to get to the pool. It's about a one-third mile journey. He's blind. How's he going to get there? Well, maybe he had a friend or two who would lead him by the hand to the pool of Siloam. Or maybe... A blind person developing some compensation for his blindness could feel his way. He would not surprisingly have heard of and known the location of the Pool of Siloam because it was a very significant feature in the day. At any rate, this is what the Lord told him to do. Go. And we do not know for certain whether the Lord told him why. All we have recorded for us is the Lord's grand invitation to go to the pool of Siloam. But we don't have, we can't say that the Lord told him this. We don't have it recorded. We don't know if the Lord said, I want you to do this because if you do this, you will see. 
you will gain sight. If you, we don't have any record of this at this time. Now, uh, whether the Lord whispered that in his ear and it's not recorded, I don't know. But I think what we can know with greater certainty is that the Lord uh, most assuredly didn't tell the crowd what was going on. Well, and the reason he didn't, he didn't announce uh, this miracle. Hey, everybody, watch what I'm going to pull off. No, and one of the reasons he didn't do it is that he didn't want to attract undue attention at this time because, remember, the Jewish religious leadership had very hostile intentions. And so this is a rather private miracle until it takes place and the man goes public uh, as a bit of a sidelight. I find the miracle-working Jesus to be entirely different than the so-called miracle-working people on TV. It's just different the way he does things. Okay, uh, this is what happens. It was rather private, and the Lord told this, I'm sure, perplexed, yet maybe increasingly hopeful man, go, and he says, wash in the pool of Siloam. So this is a downhill journey that, if you can imagine, the temple used to be on an elevated platform, and you would go downhill from it, especially... Uh, downhill from a water feature called the uh, Gihon, G-I-H-O-N, Gihon Spring. And the Gihon Spring was an intensely valuable source of water in this particular day. The problem, however, is that it was located in the Kidron Valley, and it was exposed. So if Israel came to be under siege, as they were, for instance, by the Assyrians... It would be very easy for the Assyrians to block up the Gihon Spring and thus deny the residents inside this walled city of Jerusalem access to water. But anyway, this is the route this man would travel down from the temple uh, past the Gihon Spring, which would flow downhill and empty out into this feature we're reading about called the Pool of Siloam. Now, there was a man who lived in that day, well, actually, about 2,800 years ago. Think about it, almost 3,000 years ago. His name was King Hezekiah. He was pretty smart, and he anticipated the vulnerability of the Israelites with regard to their water supply and decided to do something about it. I'll read it to you. Second Chronicles chapter 32, this is what it says, verses 3 and 4. He, King Hezekiah, decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs, Gihon Springs, which were outside the city. And they, his engineers and workers, helped him. So, so many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, why should the king of Assyria come and find abundant water? He anticipated their vulnerability when under siege by the Assyrians and commissioned engineers and workers to dig through solid rock with primitive tools a tunnel through which water would be funneled from the Gihon Spring and empty out inside the protected city walls of the city at the pool of Siloam. An amazing engineering feat in its day, if you think about it. In fact, we know they uh, 
carved out this tunnel from different directions, this direction over here and this direction over here. They didn't go, both teams of carvers, they didn't follow a straight line. That's easy to miss each other, see? So they did this thing, like a big S on both sides. And that would increase the probability that they're going to make contact with one another when they meet in the middle. Folks, it happened. They succeeded at it. I know this. I walked through this tunnel. It exists today. You can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. That was carved out of bedrock 2,800 years ago. You can do it today in a place called the City of David, just south of the old city of Jerusalem. It's an amazing feat, again, when you consider the primitive equipment of the day. So amazing, is it? I'd like for you to know a little bit more about it, so I want to call your attention to a brief video that will tell you a little bit more about Hezekiah's tunnel and how it pours out into the Pool of Siloam. So take a look at your screens. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was coming and that he was determined to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the springs which were outside the city, and they did help him. So there gathered a large group of people together, and they stopped up all the springs in the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? We are now at the Gihon Spring. It contains an enormous amount of water. Prior to Hezekiah's rule, all this water flowed outside the city through irrigation channels to the fields of the people and to the king's gardens. When he prepared Jerusalem for the Assyrian siege, Hezekiah worried that the mighty army of Assyria would camp outside the city walls, gaining access to the city's water source. He decided to prevent their use of the water by blocking and sealing the springs outside the city, including the Gihon Spring. He diverted the spring's water into an underground tunnel, which had been quarried into the heart of the mountain. Two groups of masons worked towards each other from both sides and met in the middle of the tunnel. And the water flowed from the source to the pool. The tunnel ends at the Pool of Siloam, which was inside the city behind protective walls. The account of this engineering wonder is mentioned explicitly in the Bible and is also documented in the Shiloach inscription, which was discovered six meters from the end of the tunnel. This is a copy of the inscription written in ancient Hebrew letters. It describes the dramatic moment when the two groups met inside the tunnel. The masons were swinging their axes one towards the other, and they heard the voice of one man calling his fellow. And on the day of the tunneling, the masons bore through, one man towards his fellow, axe upon axe, and the water flowed from the source to the pool for 1,200 cubits. Pretty astounding engineering feet. That's how the Pool of Siloam came to be, rerouted water from the Gihon Spring in the time of King 
Hezekiah through a tunnel you can walk through even today. And so the Lord told this man to go to that reservoir, that pool of Siloam. Now, you and I have heard about it before. In fact, it was mentioned earlier in John chapter 7 on the occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles. And I mentioned to you then, there's an unusual custom we Jews have. It's the water ceremony where the priests would go down again to the pool of Siloam and, uh, and uh, submerge into it pitchers, golden pitchers. They would take the contents of the water from the pool of Siloam and bring it back uphill to the temple area where the high priest would take it and circle uh, the altar of sacrifice and pour the water out on it. Meanwhile, the people are rejoicing and singing and all the rest. It's a time of thanksgiving to Almighty God for his supply of water during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And our rabbis also attach another significance to the water ceremony. Our rabbis tell us that the outpouring of the water uh, is an indication or a representation of the outpouring of the very Spirit of God upon the people of Israel in the last days when Messiah comes. And folks, tragically, unbeknownst to them, Messiah has come. He's right in their midst at the time. And so Messiah Jesus sent the blind man there to the pool of Siloam. In fact, the text tells us that's what Siloam means. It means sent. That's what it says. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Now, why does God have John translate the word Siloam or Shiloach? That's the Hebrew word. It means sent. Why is it translated? That's because many, most of John's readers were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They were like you peeps. And they spoke, not Hebrew, they spoke Greek. So they wouldn't have understood this. And so to accommodate the Gentile readers, a translation of the word Siloam or Shiloach is translated. It means sent. Interesting. The water in the pool was sent down from the temple. The one speaking to the blind man was sent down from God. And the blind man himself is now being sent down to the pool of Siloam by his faith in this unusual rabbi Jesus. And the text says, and so he went away and washed and, this is the best part, came back seeing. Folks, that is a miracle. That is a supernatural interruption in the natural order of affairs. That's what a miracle is. This is a miracle. A man born blind now sees. And it was not the mud that did it. And it wasn't the water in the pool of Siloam that did it. It was the miracle-working Lord Jesus the Christ who did it. And it was remarkable if you think about it. I'll tell you why. In the Old Testament, to my knowledge, uh, check me out to see if I'm right about this. Every time I do this, uh, somebody goes home and studies to see. I'll bet you, you cannot show me in the Old Testament a record of one person blind and given sight. I'll bet you can't show me the miracle of being given sight occurring to any man or woman in the Old Testament. 
Maybe I'm wrong. Check it out. It's a gimmicky way to get you to study the Bible. I think I'm right about this. I don't, I don't know of one such incident in all the Old Testament, which makes me really uh, disgusted when people today call everything a miracle as if miracles are frequently occurring events. If they were, they wouldn't be miracles, don't you see? They would be commonplace. Even in biblical times, miracles were not the norm. They were the exception to the rule. I dare you, find me one episode in the Old Testament where a blind person is given sight. Check it out. Genesis all the way to Malachi. In fact, the first episode of a blind man receiving sight is not till you get to the to the New Testament. But though we don't have any such healing episodes of blindness giving way to sight in the Old Testament, what we do have in the Old Testament is a flurry of verses which essentially say that when the Messiah comes, the blind will receive their sight. One of the indicators of the genuine Messiah's arrival is the blind will see. I'll give you just one sample. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. In the context, Isaiah is speaking of messianic hope, the hopeful day when Messiah comes. How will you know? How will you know? Many were claiming to be Messiah. Well, this is how you'll know the blind will receive their sight. And so the Lord performed uh, in his brief time here on earth, a number of miracles and the most frequently occurring kind of miracle he performed was this kind, the blind receiving their sight. That's another thing. Check me out. Look at all the miracles of the Lord in the New Testament. I'll bet you find that most often the most frequently occurring miracle is the Lord giving sight to the blind. Why did he do that? Because the Lord read the Bible. He's familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. He knew what Isaiah and other prophets said about what would characterize the day of the Messiah. And in giving sight to the blind, the Lord is saying, I'm he. Look no further. And so I think the Lord gave this man sight for sure because he had compassion on him. But I think the Lord also gave this man Sight to show us that if he had the power to open physically blind eyes, he surely has the authority and power to open spiritually blind eyes. Furthermore, I think the Lord gave this man sight to prove to us he is the Messiah. In fact, listen to this. John the baptizer, the Baptist, John the immerser was imprisoned, as you know. He insulted uh, one of Herod's relatives, and uh, the guy had a big ego, threw John in jail. He's in jail now, and John there is hearing about what this remarkable Jesus is doing on the outside. So John somehow manages to send messengers out so as to do a little bit of reconnaissance. He says to his friends... Go to this Yeshua, this Jesus, and ask him, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone 
else. And the Lord Jesus answered John's messengers and said to them, and this is recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, the Lord said, go and report to John what you hear and see. What is it that they're seeing? And then the Lord says, the blind receive their sight. And in so doing, you know what verse of scripture he's quoting? Isaiah 35, 5, the verse I just previously read to you. The Lord is absolutely doing nothing accidentally. It's all contrived to help you and I be persuaded. He is the Messiah. And so that's what he tells John's messengers. Now, the blind man did what this God man told him to do. And he did it. He had to do it by faith, not by sight. And so the blind man went down to the pool of Siloam and he cleaned off the mud from his eyes. And the text says, as we read, he came back seeing. And can you imagine what this must have been like for him? Folks, it was a miracle, but even greater, I think, than you and I may think. There's more to the miracle, if you don't mind the pun, than meets the eye, if you think about it. There is the miracle first of seeing, but there's also the miracle, think about it, of making sense of what you're seeing for the first time. This man's brain is not ready to accommodate color, shapes, texture, size, dimension, proportion, perspective. You have to grow into this. The brain has to develop the capacity to process what your eyes are taking in. But boom, he was able to. This is a true miracle, folks. And this physical miracle, it's great. But it's not nearly as great as what it points to. It points to the greater spiritual miracle that the Messiah Jesus really came here to perform. He came to, the, to open the eyes of people blinded from birth to the spiritual realities of life. And this physical miracle is just designed to show us once again, if he could do that, he can remove the blinders from our eyes so we could see. We have a problem, you and I. We've been born into sin. We've been conceived in sin and as a result, we're blind to it. We don't even see it. It's so much a part of us, we, we, can't even, we can't even notice it. We're blind not only to sin, but we're blind to the Savior who came to suffer and die for our sin. We're blind. And yet Jesus came for the very reason that our eyes might be opened and that we might see. And folks, there's no greater miracle than blinded eyes. You discussed this a little bit earlier. Things at one time you didn't see, but after coming to know Christ, now you do see. You know things about the past, present, and future, those apart from the one who gives eyes to see. Those apart from him, no, they can't see things. They can't make sense out of the things you can so in the same way as this blind man, so too with us. Folks, the man would have been blind and in darkness forever if Jesus had not come near and touched him. And in the same way, we would all die with blinded eyes and forever be in a state of darkness if Jesus had not come near. 
and opened our blinded eyes. And now you and I can see our sin and we can see the Savior who suffered and died from our sin. I memorized 40 words which encapsulate all this which I never saw but suddenly did see. I remember it. On September 5th, 1973, it was as sudden as the restoration of this man's sight in a physical sense. And so I like to share it with people. I like to tell them, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized, it's when I saw that God was willing to forgive all my sin. See, I didn't see my sin, but then I did. That God was willing to forgive all my sin. How? Through the death of his son, Jesus. How? On the cross. How? In my place. So that's one of the things we've come to see, you see. Though we're spiritually blind from birth. Touching the blind man's eyes with saliva and mud, I guarantee that would have offended some of the onlookers. What a grotesque thing by this marginalized, renegade rabbi to do. Spit and mud and dirt and all this kind of... They would have been offended. But, folks, this was the means the Lord provided so that he could move one from darkness to light and from blindness to sight. And in the same manner, I'm sure there are many even today who find the provision of Christ for our sin to be grotesque and offensive, a crucifixion, a, a, a scourging, a, a, an impalement, a piercing, a, a bloodletting. Oh, how uncivilized. Well, but this too is what the Lord has provided so that we could move from darkness to light and from blindness to sight. Don't despise what Jesus has offered as the means by which we, blind, could see. Don't question it. Don't despise it. Do as the blind man. I'm going to the pool of Siloam. I don't understand nor comprehend, but somehow a hopeful expectation about this Jesus has been conjured up in my life, and I'm just by faith going to take advantage of the vehicle by which I'm believing I can regain my sight. And so we must do the same thing with reference to the death and crucifixion and burial and torturous experience of the Lord Jesus Christ on a, an old rugged cross. That's the means by which previously blind people like you and I can see our sin in the fullness of its uh, filth and degradation. And then just as much we can see the fullness of the grace and mercy of the sin bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died for us. Folks, I have been to the pool of Siloam and I think a number of you have been there as well. I am planning, Lord willing, to go back at the end of October and would be pleased to guide you there around Hezekiah's tunnel, the temple precincts, the city of David, the pool of Siloam and more. I brought these brochures about the trip. If you're interested, come see me before you leave. I'll put one in your hand, and you could pray about going. October 27th, Lord willing, we're going. Now, if he returns before then, we'll all be so disappointed. <laughs> Not in the least. Uh, folks, 
though a visit to the pool of Siloam is a blessing for sure. To see what you really need to see, you need not run to the pool of Siloam. You need to run to Jesus. That's the moral of the story. Run to Jesus. There was a lady named Clara Scott. She was born in 1841 in Illinois. In 1882, she published something called the Royal Anthem Book, and it was the first volume of sacred choir anthems and hymns published ever by a woman. She died tragically an untimely death in 1897 when a horse went wild and upset uh, the horse-drawn buggy in which she was riding. But she did not die, this is the good news, though prematurely as we reckon it, she did not die blind and in darkness. Her eyes had previously been opened to her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1895, she wrote a hymn of consecration. And it is called, Open My Eyes That I may see. As a new believer, we used to sing it. Open my eyes that I may see. I want to read you just a few of the words. I wouldn't dare sing it to you because it would ruin it. Uh, but listen to the words as I read it. Would you take this to be perhaps a personal prayer uttered to the Lord Jesus? Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee. Do you know this one? Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes Illumine me, spirit divine. Has the Lord Jesus Christ, the miracle worker, opened your eyes? If not, why not? Why not say to him now, I accept the means of healing you have provided for me. I accept your inexplicable, unusual, grotesque, savage suffering for me on a cross. I don't comprehend it. I just accept it because I have the hopeful expectation that doing so will open my eyes so as to see things I have hitherto been blinded to come into my life. Lord Jesus, show me the fullness of my sin. Show me the greater volume of your cleansing blood. Cleanse me from sin through your shed blood. Open my eyes that I may see all that you have for me in eternity. I dare you to do it tonight. Take Jesus 
at his word. He's not requiring a combination of mud and saliva tonight. Just your heart opened wide to he whose heart was so open wide that he suffered and died in your place for your sin that you might live now and forevermore with sight to see the glories and bliss of heaven, with eyes to see that you belong to him now and forever, with eyes to see him one day face to face. I pray in the power of God's spirit that not one would leave here tonight without taking the Lord Jesus up on his word. If the blind man didn't cleanse himself in the pool of Siloam, he would remain in the state of blindness. And if you leave without allowing the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from sin, you believe in the desperate state of potentially eternal blindness as well. Don't do it to yourself. Clara Scott died prematurely. When is your time up? You don't know. Seal the deal. Take the God who exists from eternity past and eternity future and ask him to usher you into eternity contingent on your faith in him. And if you want to examine and explore that grand invitation a little more, even before you leave, we'll be waiting for you back there in the Connection Center. And we pray, Lord Jesus, to you. High and lifted up, exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father, position of authority and power. Thank you that from that vantage point, you see all that transpires in our lives with eyes opened wide to what hurts, what challenges, what disturbs us. Thank you, O oh God, for that benevolent look and gaze. Thank you for your mercy and grace by which our vision has been raised to see realities beyond this world to the world to come. Thank you for the upward gaze. Thank you for opening our eyes that we might see. And, oh, God, would you do that for some others even here tonight? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.